the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, Pentecost Sunday. When you think of the coming of the Spirit and Pentecost, what are the images that come to mind? Anything? Fire. Sorry? Fire. Fire. Fire, yep. Other things? Crowds of people. Crowds of people. Yep. A lot of noise. Yeah. It was a noise like wind, so you all came into a windy noise. A lot of voices. Yep. A lot of voices. Anything else? Wind. Understanding. Yeah. So it's a pretty dramatic story, something like this, he said, hopefully. Like this. So what did it look like when the Holy Spirit showed up? Well, it was ten days after Jesus left them, fifty days after Passover, on a day called Pentecost. Master Paul, what's Pentecost? Like Pentateuch means five books. Pentecost means 50th. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday 50 days after Passover. Right. So all of Jesus' followers were together, kind of hiding away to try to keep out of trouble. And suddenly, it sounded like a huge wind filled the house. And then something that looked like little tongues of fire came down on each one of them. Uh, did they get on fire? Did they stop, drop, and roll? Luke says it was like fire, not that it was fire. So no, they didn't catch on fire. Writing some parts of the Bible was tricky because the authors were trying to describe things that no one had ever seen before. So when Mark says the Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove, or when Luke says the Spirit came down on Jesus' followers like tongues of fire, it wasn't a real dove, and their heads weren't really on fire. That's just the best way the authors could come up with to describe what people saw. So what powers did they get? Did anyone start shooting wet? No, no wet shooting. The first thing that happened was they all started speaking in different languages. Well, that's pretty cool. And it was very helpful. Because of the holiday, there were Jews in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire who spoke many different languages. Fifteen are mentioned in Acts. And suddenly, all these visitors heard Jesus' followers speaking to them in their own language. Oh, that must have gotten their attention. It sure did. And once they had their attention, the Holy Spirit gave Peter the power to get up and speak an amazing message about who Jesus was. Peter proclaimed the good news. And about 3,000 people who heard Peter speak became followers of Jesus that day. So it's a very dramatic story. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of wind, there's a lot of flames, or things like flames, people being converted, Peter prophesying. We don't usually think of what he is doing as prophesying because we think prophesying is predicting the future, but actually, a biblical understanding of prophesying is interpreting the present. So he was interpreting the present using. In the passage we heard this morning, Joel, and then straight after this, using the Psalms. So he is prophesying. And lots of people responded to that, which is all very inspiring. 
Well, I've got to say, it leaves me feeling a little bit, well, inadequate. Because there's not a lot of that going on today, is there? And there certainly isn't a lot of that going on in, well, most mainline churches. Uh, we're a lot quieter than that. Uh, although, to be fair, the, those people who uh, were given the Spirit were pretty inadequate themselves. I mean, they were all hiding behind locked doors before this happened, so they weren't exactly out there earning their way into it. But even so, it kind of leaves me feeling like, well, what about us? Not that I actually want any of that, to be honest. I'm a little bit too reserved, I think. So, I don't know how that story leaves you feeling. But luckily there are other ways that the Spirit coming is described in the Bible. I'm supposed to have that one up. One of the other ways is in John 20. Now it's very difficult to actually, when you Google pictures for John 20, it is amazing how many of them look like that. With people with tongues of flame sitting above their head. But if you remember in John 20, it's set in a room, uh, and Jesus breathes on his disciples. There are no wind, there is no wind, there is no tongues of flame. It's a much gentler story. And the consequences are significantly different as well. There's no going out and preaching. As far as the storyline of John goes, it appears they all go back to Galilee and go fishing. So it takes a while for this giving of the Spirit to actually bear much fruit. Uh, that feels much more like my kind of story about the giving of the Spirit. In John, the Spirit is called the Paraclete, which is often translated as the Advocate, uh, which, is, which is an okay translation, but Paraclete means literally the one who is beside. The one who is beside. And the role of the one who is beside is, as we heard today in John's Gospel, to teach us and to remind us of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said. We are reminded by the Advocate, the Paraclete, the one who is beside. We are reminded that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. We are reminded that the words that Jesus spoke were the words of the Father and the deeds that Jesus did were the deeds of the Father. Paul describes what is going on using different language. He uses the language of sonship. Although, I did notice that in today's reading, uh, it had been changed to children of God, uh, which I generally am a big fan of. But in this case, it is a problem. In the world that Paul lived in, the Greco-Roman world, sons had a particular role which daughters did not have. Daughters were, at best, minors and often just property. So they had no real role in the kind of ongoing story of the family. Sons, however, particularly older sons, but all sons, had the responsibility to carry on the work of the father embodying the values that their father had lived by. 
So that's a very particular role. I'm going to say that again because I think it's a very important role. They had the responsibility to carry on the work of their father in a way that embodied the values of the father. And in carrying out the work of the father in that way, of their father in that way, they brought honour to their father and honour to their family and revealed something about who their father was. Their legacy was then in how their sons lived. So it was a very particular role, which when we translate that to just children, we kind of lose. Now, when you didn't have a son of your own, you could adopt a son to fulfill those responsibilities. Probably the greatest example of that was Julius Caesar, who adopted his nephew, one Octavian, uh, who carried on the work of Julius Caesar and became the first emperor, Augustus. So... That was a very particular example where Julius Caesar did not have a son and adopted somebody to be his son, to carry on his work, to embody the values that he had lived by. And we can debate whether they were good values or not. So that's important because when Paul describes Jesus as son of God, we usually just immediately hear that meaning that Paul is saying that Jesus is divine. And he may well have been saying that in part, but in part he was also saying, as I've said before, that, well, son of God, that was an imperial title. Augustus, Tiberius, they were all called son of God. So he was saying instead of Caesar being the son of God, the prince of peace, the saviour of the world, those are all imperial titles, he was saying this crucified rabbi from Galilee He is the true Son of God, Prince of Peace, Saviour of the world. It's a very rebellious kind of action, really. Uh, Very countercultural, very treasonous. But also when he was saying that Jesus was Son of God, he he had in mind this particular responsibility of all sons, that in Jesus, Jesus carried on the work of God the Father and embodied the values of God the Father. So those two particular meanings were what Paul was meaning. And we can see that same understanding and work in John's Gospel. When Jesus is described or describes himself as Son of God, again, it's much less a claim about Jesus being divine and much more a claim about Jesus... Jesus' responsibility to carry on the work of the Father. And in doing so, doing it in a way that embodies the values of the Father. Or to put it another way, in John's Gospel, Jesus as Son is the place where we recognise God at work. I mean, all through this last speech that we have kind of zigzagged around over the last few weeks. We've just kind of gone back to where we were two weeks ago. Jesus keeps saying this. I am in the Father, the Father is me. I do the works of the Father. This is exactly what he's saying. I, as Son, have the responsibility to carry on the works of the Father. I embody the values of the Father. In this case, the Father being God. So... This is the place where we recognise who God is. John is saying that any God talk has to start with Jesus. Jesus is the starting point. 
Because Jesus is where we get to see and touch and feel and know what God is like. And further, all God talk needs to be measured by what Jesus does and says. And if it doesn't measure up to what Jesus does and says, then it's not God. We have to do that because as the Son, He is the one who reveals who God is. So what's the role of the Spirit in all of that? Well, the role of the Spirit in John is to remind his disciples of this. To remind them that Jesus is the starting point for God talk. To remind the people of John's community about this. To remind us about that. The primary role of the Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete, the one who is beside us, John, uh, Jesus says again and again in John, is to remind us, to remind us of all of this. The Spirit also reminds us about what Paul was writing of, that we are all heirs, and as heirs, we have a responsibility to carry on the work of the Father in a way that embodies the values of the Father. That responsibility is passed on to us. And we do this knowing that the paraclete, the one who is beside us and in John's gospel within us, teaching us, reminding us, comforting us, encouraging us, advocating for us, all those meanings can be taken out of that word paraclete. Knowing that this paraclete reminds us reminds us of who God is in Jesus. We are reminded of who we are as sons and daughters of God, made in the image of God, with the responsibility to carry on the work of our Father in a way that embodies the values of God the Father, and in doing so, finding out what is ours to do, as the first disciples in John's Gospel eventually do. They might go home and go fishing, but eventually the Spirit reminds them and teaches them what is theirs to do. The Spirit is breathed into us as it was into those first disciples, so that we might continue to carry out God's work. The work of renewing creation, the work of restoring humanity. All through lives lived all through life shaped by the values lived by Jesus. Values of hospitality, generosity, compassion, justice. What I might call a resurrection life. So two images of the Spirit at work. One very dramatic, with lots of hoopla going on. And one much quieter, slower at work. Which one of those images speaks to you today? Which one of those is the spirit that you have encountered in your life? And what is that image of the spirit inviting you to? Just take a moment to think about that. If you want, you can talk to your neighbour.
When I was first ordained, this next season, which is the rest of the year, was called Pentecost, uh, which effectively meant that the rest of the year we were to spend thinking about how the Spirit is at work in our world and in us. Uh, but then we kind of went on board with the three-year lectionary, so that was when we were on the two-year lectionary. Uh, the three-year lectionary, which is the revised common lectionary, which lots of churches use internationally, uh, which is what we now use. Uh, this period is no longer called, well, actually some people do call it Pentecost, but mostly it's called ordinary time, which doesn't mean that it's ordinary, it's just... Uh, it doesn't have a special name to it. So, uh, but it is still a time where we think about what the Spirit, how the Spirit is at work in our life and in the world. So I invite you today to take one of these flowers that we made on Easter Sunday as a reminder of, well, the image of the Spirit that is at work in you, whether it's the Acts image or whether it's the, the John 20 image. And as a reminder of how that spirit is at work in you. That sometimes I think we think, oh, well, that's Pentecost out of the way and we can get on with normal life. But actually, normal life is in the spirit. So it's all about living resurrection lives. So I invite you to take one of these flowers as a reminder of that, that this is not the end. This is the beginning. And the rest of the story rests with us for now. And however we pass it on. Don't do that now. Do that at communion. So come up for communion and as you go back, or as you come up, grab a flower and then take it back. Uh, we're going to um, now say uh, the creed, uh, but we're going to do a different creed. I'm going to ask you to turn to page 157 in your prayer books. Which those of you who know your prayer books really well will know that you're in the middle of midday prayer, which I'm sure you all say every day. And it's one of our great, uh, one of the great poems that has come out of this country, James K. James K. Baxter's Song of the Holy Spirit. So invite us to stand and we will use this. Page 157. <laughs> 